This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello and a very happy Wednesday afternoon to you. Glad you could be part of it here on the Country Hour today. Shortly, you'll learn more about this new sea freight pilot program that's being launched this afternoon. It's called Less Than a Container Load. And as the name suggests, this is for WA producers who don't have a lot of product that they want to export um, to overseas markets. I would really like the opportunity to do that. So a chance for them to sort of join forces with other smaller exporters and share that shipping container space that's off to Singapore. How it all works, which industries might benefit. You'll learn more about that shortly here on the Country Hour before the news headlines at half past 12. And there's also been a development in the proposed $70 million Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme near Manjimup in the state's southwest. And that development, the details of that after news headlines and across to the Bureau at half past 12. Six past 12 here on ABC WA. Now, as you've been hearing here on the Country Hour, the price for farm produce is pretty good at the moment. That uh, take-home check for farmers looking quite healthy across a range of different things. And just over the last couple of weeks, you've been hearing about, you know, the high prices for things like beef, lamb, canola, and also some other grains. Well, Rabobank has just released its Index of Agricultural Commodity Prices And it's risen by 50% since the middle of last year. Now, that's mainly due to things like the weather. There's a bit of speculation in there. And the weakening US dollars also played its role. But Rabobank analyst Charles Clack says the main factor is rising demand from key importers. I mean, without doubt, the largest factor here is around uh, is around China, um, and we see China buying you know, large, you know, vast volumes of particularly of soybeans, um, and then also of corn. Uh, we see them also returning into the into the market for sugar, and also uh, cotton as well being a, a big factor. Uh, and that's purely on the sort of agri you know, commodity side. Of course, there's other agricultural food products which they are purchasing as well. But when we look at perhaps other you know other parts of the world, we look uh, you know for in terms of sugar. We look at the likes of um, sort of Indonesia and um, you know, other sort of major importing nations uh, are looking at sort of yeah, having to control their domestic sugar industries and, and therefore are looking at increasing uh, imports, firstly to, for, for use, but also increasing those buffers. And when we look at sort of grain and wheat, we are seeing further inquiry and interest uh, in the Middle East. Those typical importers of, of wheat are looking to improve their uh, and, and increase their sort of imports there. So it is a real diverse group that are looking to buy, you know, improve imports. But but without doubt, the largest factor here is China. Is this overall high demand picture a pretty good outcome for Australian grain farmers, especially who have a lot of grain to sell at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah, it it really is. Uh, And it comes off the back, of course, of a a tough couple of seasons down to drought, etc. So, you know, taking China out of the mix, it is very positive for growers and and for the, you know, the rural communities. And so it's, yeah, you know, we, we see it being very, very positive. Of course, you know, I will throw China back in the mix and that does raise some questions. Uh, but in some cases, while we see that we're not dealing directly 
with China. Uh, China is looking for these products you know, in other parts of the world. Now, let me take cotton as the example. While cotton is not, China is not purchasing cotton directly from Australia, it's having to purchase it from the US and, of course, uh, Brazil as, as well. That pushes up the international price. So while growers here in, in Australia are perhaps suffering on their basis because they can't enter that China market, actually on the international price, um, you know, that's very, very strong. On the flip side of that, the last time we saw food prices uh, really spiking was in 2008. That led to a crisis, lots of riots around the world. Is there any parallel to this situation or are we not quite there yet? I think the real parallel that we, we see is around um, you know, the speculative activity um, you know, compared to now and 2018. And I should emphasise that we talked about some other factors really driving the market and triggering this higher but it's without doubt that the, the speculation or, or the non-commercial participants exaggerate this move. So we're seeing, you know, particularly by index traders who are passive, it tends to be more passive traders, um, you know, invest more in the long term, things like pension funds, etc., are becoming very interested in, in the agri-commodities. We're seeing them move more into this space, uh, you know, again, as a potential hedge against U.S. dollar inflation. Um, so definitely some similarities there. And that movement, the speculative movement, is that just taking kind of a momentary punt on the current situation or are this, is this type of money moving in longer term? Speculators themselves, it does cause that concern that they, they've moved in quickly over the course of a, a couple of months. And again, they could move out you know, quite sharply as well. But this is slightly different because we're seeing it's more the index traders moving in. So it's more these, these passive funds that are looking for, for, for US dollar inflation. So they're yeah, looking to hedge against that. And so they're not necessarily going to move out quite so quickly as, you know, perhaps what we'd say from traditional sort of speculation uh, and those you know, traditional sort of non-commercial. In our view, it could last a little bit longer than just, um, you know, a change of heart or a change of sentiment. And the overarching view, just to wrap up, Charles Clark, was that these higher prices will stick around for some time. Well, that's it. Yeah, for the moment, we don't see necessarily any major strength in the US dollar coming around the corner. We also continue to see La Nina uh, causing dryness in, in several different parts of the world. As we get into the US spring planting season, uh, you know, dryness remains there. That does start to raise big questions for the new crop in 2021. Other factors, global demand remains strong. And, and while that's all at play, we still see speculators within these markets. So you know, really, we are looking at sort of these, these factors playing a, a big role uh, as we move forward through 2021. 11 past 12 here on the Country Hour. That's Rabobank analyst Charles Clack speaking to Clint Jasper about the bank's index of agricultural commodity prices, which has risen by 50% since the middle of last year. Now, turning your attention to cattle now, because Rabobank is also confident the current high prices for cattle will be around for at least the next few years. Senior analyst Angus Gidley-Baird was a guest speaker at the recent Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association conference. And he says even though countries are expected to recover from the global pandemic, it could take five years before there's a significant dip in cattle prices. So recovery through the COVID process, and it's probably more pertinent for those further down the supply chain. I think, you know, with limited cattle supplies and good cattle prices at the moment, you know, the the producers probably are insulated from some of those things. But basically, you know, key things to watch are how government 
governments roll back fiscal stimulus, how they roll back their support mechanisms, because a lot of that has supported a lot of the demand so far. And if they mistime that and the economy hasn't recovered, then we might see a drop in, in some of that demand. But generally, you know, with the rollout of vaccine, we expect food service to start opening up again, travel to start increasing, and, and generally demand to, to be sustained, if not slightly lifted. One thing I found quite interesting that you were talking about was Indonesia. So obviously up here in the northwest, I would say a lot of the producers rely on that market, but you're saying that's one that's a bit more precarious than other countries. Yeah, it's just uh, we, we think it's probably going to have a slower recovery than some of the other Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries. A lot of the, a lot of the economic growth uh, in, in Indonesia is driven internally by their own sort of consumers and their own buying patterns rather than being able to tap into some of the growth in other parts of the world so you know leveraging some of that trade so compared to some of their other southeast asian cousins which have a greater ability to tap into that so therefore it's going to rely on that indonesian economy recovering to to foster that growth rather than being able to piggyback on some of the others so it's just going to be a a slower recovery for indonesia than say vietnam for example if a producer was looking at that risk to offset that where is the growth where they should be sort of looking at in the future yeah and and cognizant that you know from a production point of view you you probably gear yourself to either a live export trade whether that be a um, a feeder animal or a slaughter animal so there's differences in terms of what what age they're sending them or whether you're sending it to a domestic abattoir but I I think really it's probably just understanding uh, what's driving those markets at the time and that will then feed into your decision making to say well you know do I keep these cattle at the moment try them grow grow them out a little bit more do I send them south um, to to a feedlot situation and and, um, put them through the domestic markets but it's not to say that Indonesian market is not strong it's it's still a good market and we've seen amazing live export prices um, um, they're probably unsustainable where they are at the moment, given you know, the price for beef in Indonesia and, as I said, that, that slower economic situation they've got at the moment. But we do expect it to recover. Could you just touch on the domestic market here in Australia and what sort of what that's been doing, almost keeping the industry alive, which is sort of unusual? Yeah, well, it's, it's domestic in the sense that it's the, the local producer and the, la- the lack of cattle that is really pushing our cattle prices. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at a, uh, a 15% drop in cattle slaughter last year, which is reflective of you know, less cattle in the system, but also producers holding on to what cattle they've got, um, trying to rebuild herds or, or even just try cattle and make take advantage of the strong prices so yeah it's it's quite interesting you speak to a lot of people people in particularly New South Wales where they've had a phenomenal change in season and and they're just desperate to try and find an animal to actually eat the grass that they've got at the moment and you hear stories of you know people in New South Wales sourcing cattle out of WA out of northern Queensland anywhere they can get their hands on cattle to try and put them on grass at the moment that's just that's fueled the the price here locally so you've got not only processes competing for cattle to try and keep them going through their plants and the plants operating and feedlots trying to keep feedlots um, full um, but you've also got those producers out there that are all competing for the same limited supply of cattle. Obviously the herd is very low at the moment, national herd, but in the future would that sort of equal out or would we see prices really drop when there's an oversupply? Uh, yeah, prices will. I mean, it's, it's a normal seasonal thing with with um, with Australian beef production. Um, we will get back to a point where we've got a full cattle herd, effectively, if you can call it that. And you know, we potentially have a dry season, and suddenly everyone sells cattle again, and you'll see prices come down dramatically. But 
I think where we're situated at the moment, um, the limited number of cattle in the system, it's, it's going to take probably five plus years before we find ourselves in a situation like that again. Um, we're going to be probably rebuilding this herd for at least three to five years. And, you know, even with drier conditions, I mean, we looked at 2019, yeah, there before it was very dry in some parts of the east um, and prices were still very strong. So it gives you an idea that even with dry conditions in the current situation with limited cattle supplies prices will remain strong so it'll be at least five years before we find ourselves in a situation where we're talking about prices potentially crashing and just lastly i don't know if i read that graph right that you had at the end but is wa will sort of be the biggest winner out of those highest prices yeah well wa prices are very strong at the moment comparable or even slightly higher than some of those in the east at the moment wa's seen similar situation to eastern states in terms of dry conditions in recent years and as a result you know cattle that have moved away you've also seen wa cattle move into eastern states as well so it's a limited cattle supply situation in wa as well which is going to mean that prices here i think will stay reasonably strong you know naturally as the herd rebuilds though prices will ease but i think it's going to be a couple of years before we find ourselves you know with with prices a lot lower than where they are we think they're going to be very strong for at least two years angus skidley baird he's an animal protein senior analyst at rabobank just going through the detail with james liveris about you know why he thinks cattle prices are going to remain strong for at least a few years 18 past 12 well grain prices are also high at the moment it was just yesterday that you heard here on the country about on the country are about the uh, great prices being paid for canola at the moment But it's certainly not all smooth sailing. Late last year, a shipment of Australian canola was refused entry into China after Chinese authorities claimed it contained the disease blackleg and other foreign materials. It was more than 30,000 tonnes of canola and it's believed to have come from the Port of Geraldton here in WA. Andrew Wiedemann is from Grain Producers Australia and says it's a sign of the ongoing trade tensions between Australia and China. This happened in November last year. It was a shipment that was actually bound for uh, an internal user and, and their own customer, the shipper. So we've struggled with China, obviously with barley and, and, and other commodities have suffered the fate of, of working with China at a time when there's a lot of disruption politically between the two countries. But look, ultimately, the China market is still important to us for canola. And just on to this shipment to China, it was stopped due to issues with blackleg. There isn't meant to be a memorandum of understanding with China for blackleg, specifically from Western Australia. Is that right? Is there more to this decision yes, than meets the yes. eye? Look, I mean, I was involved back in uh, 2009 when the, the trade was stopped. And then in 2013, through the Grains Industry Market Access Forum uh, Group, which will now become Grains Australia, we were actually able to negotiate an MOU between China and Australia, which allowed for up to at least 1% of blackleg uh, in in the uh, sample. The sample, that I, as I understand it, and we've taken tests around Australia, all of the samples are still well and truly below the 1% level of blackleg. And blackleg is, is obviously something that occurs late in season in, in specific areas when uh, we get pod formation and we get late rains prior to harvest or windrowing and then we get pod infection, which then uh, gets onto the seed. So does that make you concerned about future shipments of canola to China? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think at the moment, you know, if an exporter is looking to... Uh, 
export into China, then there's going to have to be a negotiated deal between uh, Mofcom and, and the exporter really to take the risk out of exporting into China. Uh, and, and obviously that's something that we've got to work on as an industry. That's uh, We've got to try and head off what's going on again at the moment. Um, we know that uh, you know our wheat trade to China is uh, probably going to be in a record level, I believe, this year, the way it's going. And that's you know, that's good on one hand, but on the other hand, we've still got other commodities that we're looking to place in there. And, you know, we, we've got a lot to work through, again, with China. And, and again, uh, the avenues and, and the doors are pretty quiet at the moment. So why did it take so long for the news of this shipment being rejected back in November to come out? Yeah, well, look, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like old news to myself. So it's sort of... Uh, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's uh, here and, and people are sort of concerned about it. But, you know, look, I think in that respect too, it really shows that the trade has been quite mature about the way it's managed it. And uh, we've still seen record prices for, for canola um, on the basis of uh, of other areas around the world not having enough supply. So what happened to this shipment after it was knocked back? Did it find another buy? Uh, look, I understand that, to be honest, it was actually used internally. So... Um, I'm not sure that uh, it was actually totally turned away from what I understand. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, it's still a shipment that was uh, refused and and obviously it stops and puts pressure on the rest of the industry before they they ship again to China. And and that's going to be what has to be worked through this coming year and and into the next year. The shipment was knocked back by Chinese authorities, but it might have ultimately got through. What a confusing process. Is that a tough marketplace to be working in for the grains industry? Yeah, look, it is. It is. But in this case, you know, the, the customer up there was the person that was actually shipping it. And they were using it in their own facility. So I think that was how it was negotiated through. But I mean, in terms of everybody else, you know, it's a different game. So it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, look, some of that perhaps. But, uh, you know, in China, again, you know, it, it just didn't meet their requirements. But uh, under the MOU, I, I feel like it did. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they're the governing body. And, and as you know, things aren't um, probably as good as they should be between our two countries, which is unfortunate because on both sides of the coin, you know, it's, it's ending up costing both countries a lot of money. Andrew Wiedemann, he's from Grain Producers Australia and speaking with Warwick Long. 23 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. So good to be catching up with you this afternoon. News headlines at half past 12, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology and checking in on the sheep prices, the sheep and lamb prices today at Katanning. Tracy Kilner going through all those details for you just before the news at one o'clock, as always. A new sea freight pilot program is being launched today and it's called Less Than a Container Load or LCL. And as the name suggests, it's all about getting smaller Western Australian producers together to share some space in a shipping container. Daryl Hockey is the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council and he says the first trial is for seafood being sent to Singapore and if it's successful, he thinks the model could be used for anything. Quite often in freight, if you want to send something overseas, you've got to book an entire 20 or 40 foot container. This new pilot project is going to allow lots of smaller producers to come together to put in small um, packaged lots, which, which all together will pack up an entire container. And this is sea freight, isn't it? That's correct. It's sea freight. This, this initial shipment will be going to Singapore, which is clearly an important market. It'll take about a week or so to get there. 
and they're going to be doing pilots on, on different temperatures. For instance, this first one will be at minus one degree um, and there's certain products which are suited to go there in, in the chilled market, not so much with seafood. We'll really be looking at the minus eight degree frozen products, but also when it comes to agricultural products like lamb and horticultural products, products there'll also be temperatures which will suit them like plus one degree plus four degrees plus eight degrees so this is potentially a real game breaker for the smaller producers in WA. Daryl to share space in a container it just seems remarkably simple so why hasn't this been done before? Well that's a very good question Joe. Um, you know all great ideas um, all, always look remarkably simple. <laughs> and no in insult was intended, <laughs> yeah. but I just sort of thought, wouldn't that be logical? <laughs> well, yeah, well, yes, it, it is overwhelmingly logical. But, I, you know, what's happened in WA over the years is um, we've, we've done things in a big way. We've mm. been exporting by air freight, and, and that's always worked out well commercially. But in the current environment that, that we face ourselves in, the cost of air freight is very expensive. There's, a, there's an air freight scheme called IFAM, which is funded by the federal government. Um, but even with that in place, there's simply not enough planes going out from WA to, to service the industry. Plus, the costs are just creeping up higher and higher and higher all the time. And I think now that people are getting a bit of a reality check of the new operating environment and we've realized that we're just going to have to diversify into a whole more heap more markets with smaller product lines. With regard to seafood you said that you think that seafood would would fit the uh, containers where the temperature is about minus eight so we're talking about frozen products going in but what types of product are we talking about there? Well we could have frozen lobster products which or frozen crabs for instance frozen abalone all sorts of other chilled, chilled seafood, but then there's the opportunity now to, to go for value-adding and, and to find new derivative products which are going to heat, meet the high end of the market. And particularly in a, in a market like Singapore, there's a lot of people over there with a lot of money. And if we can identify the right market se- segments, there's a potential for us to start creating new products to meet the potential market demand. We're talking about a range of different commodities sharing space basically within a container and that container being transported via sea to Singapore. So it's about a seven-day journey. What's your understanding with regard to the freight costs for those commodities? How will that compare to, say, pre-COVID flight charges that people might have been paying? This is going to be a much cheaper option because, you know, let's face it, we're selling a lower-value product. If something's frozen or chilled, it's going to be a lot lower value than if we're sending, for instance, live lobster that we were selling, sending by plane before. So, look, it's really just a proportion of the cost. But to be perfectly honest, there wasn't a lot of other products being exported by the state. Most of the fin fish in our state, we well, all of it is consumed here in Australia. We don't export any of that. There's only certain products in the seafood industry that we export. It's things like rock lobster deep-sea crabs, scallops, prawns, abalone. There are not a lot of other products which we're exporting, but now we've got an opportunity to send out some some in a value-added form. Daryl Hockey, he's from the WA Fishing Industry Council, talking to Joe Prendergast about that pilot program being launched today. It's a sea freight program called Less Than a Container Load, LCL. 
This is the Country Hour. It's 28 past 12 and Jonathan Hopper has just stepped into the studio. What's happening in the news headlines? Hello, Belinda. US President Joe Biden's top medical advisor, Anthony Fauci, has heaped praise on Australia's response to COVID-19 pandemic. Dr Fauci joined Australia's Chief Medical Officer, Paul Kelly, in an online conversation comparing the coronavirus situation in the US and Australia. He said the huge number of infections and deaths in the US showed its approach to dealing with the pandemic wasn't as effective. A senior constable who allegedly returned a blood alcohol reading, reading nearly five times the legal limits in South Perth last month has been stood down and charged. The off-duty police officer was stopped for a random breath test before noon on February 15th and was taken to a police station where she allegedly gave a reading of 0238 and in the AFL, club captains are backing, backing defending Premier's Richmond to figure strongly again in the battle for the 2021 Premiership. The league has surveyed all 18 club captains ahead of the season launch. The Tigers were top picked to make the grand final, whilst Brisbane, Geelong and Port Adelaide were the most common picks to make the top eight. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you for that update. And it's half past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Between now and the news at one, off to Katanning just before one o'clock, a wrap of the Katanning sheep market with Tracy Kilner. Also checking in on the state's southern mango harvest. The growers just about to wrap up things for the harvest this year and a little bit disappointing. You will hear shortly from Tony Madden, one of the Jinjin mango growers, and also an update on, well, it's been quite a heated debate over this Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme proposal near Manjimup in the state's southwest. There's really strong views on both sides of the argument with this proposal. And now the two ministers, Agriculture and Water Ministers, have stepped in to say that there is going to be an independent review of the modelling that underpins the project. Details of that shortly. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Matt Bodehoven this afternoon. Matt, how's it looking in northern and eastern parts? Yeah, so uh, we've got a seasonal showers and thunderstorms continuing in the north of the state. Um, so th- on Thursday, showers and thunderstorms through the interior, eastern Goldfield, eastern Gascoyne, Goldfields and western parts of Eucla, also through the Pilbara and the Kimberley. Then into Friday, the showers and thunderstorms will start um, pushing a little bit further northwards, so uh, mainly in the northern goldfields, eastern nuclear, uh, Gascoigne interior, uh, Pilbara and Kimberley, and pushing off uh, the coast there and potentially the storm around Broome and maybe even Port Headland um, late, late evening or early morning. And uh, over the weekend, showers and thunderstorms will be confined mainly to northern parts of the state uh, through the Kimberley, Pilbara, north and northern and central interior and the far north Gascoigne. Rainfall figures could be, uh, could be on the increase there, especially through the interior and parts of the Pilbara there. And um, there's a reasonable chance of a shower storm around Port Hedland, Caratha, the coastal areas of the Pilbara there over the weekend. And what have you got for the Southwest Land Division, Matt? Sure. On Thursday, uh, the surface trough will move east out of the southwest land division. Showers and thunderstorms through southern and eastern parts of the southwest land division. Uh, rainfall figures may be around 4 to 10 millimetres around the south coastal and the adjacent parts. Humid conditions are continuing there on Thursday. 
But into Friday, those humid conditions will start uh, easing up a bit as uh, the surface trough moves east of the state and a ridge uh, starts uh, developing to the south of the state. Uh, still a couple of showers around southern parts of the southwest land division there on Friday. Uh, two to three millimetres possible in parts uh, closer to the south coast or around the south coastal district. Over the weekend, uh, that high-pressure ridge uh, will continue to be the dominant weather pattern uh, lying south of the state. So on Saturday, mostly sunny conditions, some cloud near the south coast at first. Then into Sunday, uh, mostly sunny conditions continuing, uh, temperatures rising uh, slightly, um, and there might be a chance of a shower thunderstorm in the far north of the central west uh, there late on Sunday. And warnings this afternoon? Uh, we do have a warning for the Esperance Coast, and we do have a severe thunderstorm warning uh, for the western parts of the southeast coastal, um, southeast parts of the Great Southern and adjacent South Coastal District. So those are the kind of areas like uh, Radensort, Lake King and Hopeton. Uh, we've had some good thunderstorms this morning. We've seen uh, around 43, 40 millimetres around Jerramungook. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's since since 9 o'clock this morning. Is that right, Matt? Uh, it was 24 hours, so a fair majority has occurred uh, since... So here we go. Yep, 43.6 uh, since 6 a.m. this morning. Right, okay. Tidy. Thank you for the details, Matt. Appreciate that. This is the Country Hour, 26 to 1. And going into more detail with those rainfall figures, here's Richard Hudson. Yeah, these are the rainfall figures to 9am. Do you like that where Matt's just tried to supersede me, just trying to make me a little bit obsolete? He's not the first person to try that successfully. In the northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, the only one worth reading out is Nicholson with 12. In the Pilbara, nothing. In the Gascoigne region, Mount Vernon, 52. And Tangadee, 10. In the interior, Goldfields, Eucla districts, nothing at all. Nothing out on the islands either. And in the southwest land division forecast districts in the central west... Eridu, only 0.2 of a mil, sorry. In the lower west, Jinjin topped it with four. In the southwest, Margaret River topped it with five. In the southern coastal region, Denbarker had five mils over two days. Jeremung up 27 mils to 9am. But, of course, they've had some more, as you just heard. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Jacob, Stirlings North and Tamar all had five mils. And then in the central wheat belt, uh, Moorine Rock, five. In the Great Southern region, Arthur River, six. Tamble up six as well. Kojanolican Hills had five. Nyabing had three to six mils across three locations. But uh, one thing Matt did mention was there are some thunderstorms around. When you get thunderstorms, there's also some lightning strikes. And sometimes when you get a bit of lightning around, you get some fires. Just had a call from a fire control officer in the Lake Grace area. They're in the middle of fighting a fire just east of Lake Grace. They're on top of it. Everything's going okay. Apart from on the road with some people who have been driving past and even though there are some fire control vehicles with lights flashing, people have been whizzing past at around about, you know, 110 still and just not slowing down. So he said, would you please just slow down because over the next little while, I don't think he's going to be the only one who's going to be fighting some fires. So, yeah. Well, you could be fighting for your spot here on... The country, aren't oh, we? bring it on, bring it on. Maddie's sitting there yeah. with all the screens up with the latest details I, I, on the I, rainfall. I, I challenge him to read it out on one of those Mondays when it's been raining the entire weekend. Bring it on, bring We're it on. Laying down the gauntlet. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Go and have a nice uh, cup of tea. <laughs> Settle yourself down. This is the country hour.
and it's 23 to 1 o'clock. Uh, a wrap of the Katanning sheep market, checking in with the southern mango harvest. And as I mentioned a moment or two ago, there's been a development in the proposed $70 million Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme. This is just near Manjimup in the southwest of the state. The proposal is to bring a 15 gigalitre dam on Record Brook and a 250 kilometre pipeline distribution network that will supply water to irrigators in the area who've purchased a water entitlement for the scheme. State Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan and Water Minister Dave Kelly have written to stakeholders to announce they've commissioned an independent review of the modelling that underpins the project, and that's going to be carried out by the CSIRO. This comes in response to a furious debate over whether the state's own modelling is reliable. John Kilrain is president of the Manjimup Water Security Group, which opposes the scheme, and, as you'd imagine, he welcomes the review. Um, obviously there's going to be a terms of reference of what they'll look into and we'd, we'd like to make sure that's open and transparent, open to the public so everyone knows what they'll look into and where this will go and then obviously the findings of it also need to be made public. So yeah, if, if it's done correctly, uh, it will be a very significant event. Is it what you've been calling for? It's what we've been calling for for two and a half years, Daniel. Yep, the state government spent $7 million and I think now, if this is done correctly, it'll highlight the concerns that we've had for a long period of time. Now, your group has made no secret, John, of its objections to the project. So if the CSIRO finds that the scheme is sustainable, that it can take water in a sustainable way, as per the state government's own modelling, will you accept that? If there's some input into the terms of reference so that uh, it's open and transparent, um, we'd be happy to accept that. But I guess also there's a report out of University of Melbourne uh, that highlights that the software program used for the modelling is highly inaccurate. So um, that alone is good to see that now the government are serious about making sure that we're not going to spend this money and not not come up with a scheme that's going to work. So just on that, Daniel, I don't think there's anyone in the region that's against spending that sort of money and investment here, but we just need to make sure it'll work, and I don't believe that the current model is going to do the job. That point you raised about having input into the terms of reference, what are the key terms that you'd like to see as part of that? We're just working through that at the moment. We still need to have it assured from the government that we can have some input into that. Certainly the CSIRO, we've got every confidence in them. Uh, It was interesting that Jeremy Bauer, the CEO of the Irrigation Scheme, has been saying they're backing it in. makes you wonder now if that was the case. Um, the other thing that we do have some concerns about is the Minister said the EPA will continue along at the same time. If the EPA are truly independent, the EPA should be making that decision. Uh, based on interest in the scheme to date, it appears there's significant pent-up demand for water in the Warren Donnelly region. Both the past couple EOI processes have been oversubscribed to a pretty heavy degree. Do you think that shows a need for a project like the Southern Forests Irrigation Scheme? I think there's the demand for the water is not a problem. The problem they've got is the reliability of the water, even in the state government's own document that they've presented back to us. In 2030, or sorry, 2050, they're now predicting only a 30% reliability. And I'd suggest that there'd be no avocado grower that can 
rely on a 30% reliability for water. Where to from now? Uh, they're indicating that it'll only take four weeks. What we need to do now is, I guess, the, the election needs to come and go, and then we need to uh, confirm that we can have some input into the terms of reference and, and make sure it's open and transparent, and then we can get it underway, and then the community hopefully will get to see what we've been saying for a long period of time. Majima Water Security Group President John Kilrain with Daniel Mercer. On the country hour, 19 to 1. And on the text, 0448 922 604. This from Cole. The southern forests will never stack up. No southwest aquifers are recharging fully. And rainfall and rivers both in growing deficit, according to Cole. What do you make of it and this new independent review into the modelling of this uh, project, this Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme proposal just near Manjimup in the state's southwest. The text 0448 922 Jeremy Bauer is the Chief Executive of the Southern Forest Irrigation Cooperative and he also backs this review. But unlike opponents of the scheme, he says he won't be trying to influence the review's terms of reference. This whole project has been based on good science to date, so it's further scrutiny only makes for a more robust assessment, which is only better for our members going forward. Was it a surprise to you in any way, or did the government consult you before it went to commission this review? Uh, Well, I was aware of it. This was raised, as you're aware, when John Kilrain and co enlisted uh, Kim Taylor and uh, the Department of Water responded emphatically at that point, which is towards the end of last year. However, this is a good approach from an agricultural minister who cares about the region. The government has approached the CSIRO to carry out the review. Is the CSIRO, do you think, the best organisation to do that? Oh, Daniel, I'm, I'm not a... Uh, an expert in this field, but my understanding is the CSIRO or the Australia's preeminent scientific organisation. So uh, as an independent reviewer of that ilk, I'd be very comfortable with them undertaking the work. The Manjimup Water Security Group has welcomed the announcement as well, but they would like to have some sort of input into the terms of reference, how they're framed, what's in them. What's your position? You know, Are you comfortable with that idea? Uh, look, that's that's for the government to decide effectively. What I'd say is, and I reiterate, that CSIRO are the Australia's preeminent scientific organisation, so I trust that they will be a strong independent arbitrator. And all I would say to John Kilroy and that group is, once this decision has been made, or once this review has been made, that should be the end of the, the discussion. Southern Forest Irrigation Cooperative CEO Jeremy Bauer talking to Daniel Mercer about the proposed $70 million Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme in the state's southwest and the news coming through today that Alana McTiernan and Dave Kelly, so the Agriculture and Water Ministers, have written to the stakeholders announcing they've commissioned an independent review of the modelling that underpins that particular project and it's going to be done by the CSIRO. 16 to 1. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour. And just got a text through showing the current storms on the radar. There is a little bit about in this part of Western Australia 
and this text just saying that the big storm front went through from early this morning from Katanning East to all the way to Cascade in the east and then south to Bremer and Hopeton. So I think uh, Richard Hudson will have a little bit to get through if he's still got that job reading through those rainfall figures on the country out tomorrow. Off to Katanning very shortly with a wrap of the market today. First up, though, another disappointing harvest is wrapping up for the state's southern mango growers. There are about 14 mango producers in the Jinjin region, which is about an hour north of Perth, and their crop is always the last to be picked in the summer mango season. This year, there were hopes for a good crop, but Tony Madden from the Southern Mango Growers Association says early flowering and warm, dry conditions saw yields drop by 75%. We had a lean year last year, we had a lean year this year. An old mate of mine in the Northern Territory reckon mango's going five-year cycles. You have two lean years, two average years and one good year, so the next three are going to be average to good years. Well, you're well and truly due, aren't you? (laughs) We sure are, according to the bank balance, yeah. What do you think has caused the crop to be quite thin this year? Do you think it's just one of those things or has it been the unusual weather that we may maybe had in the middle of last yeah, year. We had, yeah, we had a warm June, which uh, sort of tricked the trees into flowering early. So we got an early flowering and then uh, we got a, a couple of subsequent flowerings and um, the earlier flowerings, the fruit uh, set, but it uh, didn't mature. Most of it uh, just hit the ground. So it's only the later flowering that's actually matured. So, uh, you know, about a quarter of, uh, of what the crop should be. So you reckon it's, what did you say there, a quarter of what it could have been? Yes, yes, from what we started with, uh, the early fruit set, yeah. Oh, that must be disappointing. It is, yes, yes, especially when it's two years in a row. It was also quite dry during some parts of last year. Does that affect the trees as well? Yes, it did. Uh, We had high temperatures, you know, we had uh, a series of uh, days in a row of up around the 43 degrees and uh, the humidity was down to uh, around about 8% on average. That caused the, uh, yeah, a lot of the fruit drop. Has there been any upside in terms of pricing? I imagine your story is pretty similar for most of the southern mango growers, so there's a shortage. Has that caused the price to go up a little? Um, well, no, we've deliberately kept our prices at uh, the same level as last year uh, just to make sure you know, that the... Uh, the demand is there. I mean, you know, we don't really want to be upping prices and uh, frightening people off. We'd rather, you know, sell what we produce. You're selling most of yours on farm, aren't you? We're selling all of it on farm, Joe, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, we get a lot of people from Perth, even as far south as Bunbury, uh, put in orders and uh, come up and collect it. The big thing in most agricultural industries at the moment has been discussion around labour and shortage of people to pick the crop. Um, I imagine with not much to pick, has that just rested upon you this year? Uh, well, no, we've had a few uh, locals come in to help us. The average age of our team would have been uh, about 65. I mean, I'm 72, and uh, my wife's you know, sort of pretty close to that, and uh, the rest of the pickers were uh, you know, sort of in their 60s. Were they people that you'd normally get, or were they grey nomads? Who were they? Uh, no, just locals. Um, locals, but not locals that we normally get, just... Uh, yeah, we sort of put the feelers out and a few locals came to the fore. And they were fantastic picking. Oh, what was that? Average age 65. But some pretty hard work harvesting the mangoes. But job well done by the sounds of things. Jinjin mango grower Tony Madden with Joe Prendergast. And it's 12 to 1. 
Well, the Australian Mango Industry Association has a brand new CEO. His name is Brett Kelly, and he's taking over from long-serving Chief Executive Robert Gray. So who is this new person on the block? Well, Brett Kelly has a background in dairy and berries. I uh, Previous to this role, I was the uh, CEO for Ausgroup Cooperative. Uh, Ausgroup Cooperative is the largest uh, producer and grower of uh, blueberries and uh, blackberries in Australia. Um, so I was there for two years. Prior to that, I was the CEO for Norco Cooperative um, for about nine years. Uh, Norco is uh, an iconic farmer-owned cooperative um, in the dairy industry. And then prior to that, uh, going back, I, I've, I was a CEO in a pharmaceutical group. And predominantly, a lot of my background before that has been retail wholesale and business management. So I've been able to bring a lot of that, I suppose, experience into the agriculture uh, market, which is, um, has helped me to achieve a fair bit. And so what is it about the mango industry that's lured you into this job? <laughs> I, um, I just see huge potential uh, for um, Australian mangoes. And, and I'm a I'm just a really strong believer in the whole heritage and the story behind farmer growers. Um, the, the key thing that made Norco uh, incredibly successful, we, we, we doubled the size of that business over that period of time, was the story that it's a 100% Australian farmer-owned co-op. And, and I did pretty much the same thing with Group, but with the... Um, the mango industry, it, it's an amazing product. There's an amazing story of farmers behind it. And I just see huge opportunity to build and position the product and the branding, both domestically and in export. Um, and, and the objective of that at the end of the day, which I always take great pride in, is that if you can, if you can get the synergies, you can get the, um, the positioning, you can get the branding, all those things happening while it produces more profit back to our growers that means they can then reinvest and it gives you that long-term sustainability for succession planning. Brett Kelly, he is the new CEO of the Australian Mango Industry Association and talking to Matt Bran. Nine to one, the market details from Katanning shortly. First though, X-ray technology in abattoirs promises to reduce costs and improve how much meat you can get from, you know, your sheep or your cattle, whatever. But Australian meat processors aren't jumping at the chance to install this technology. The DEXA X-ray camera can scan a carcass and tell you basically the best way to cut it to get the most meat out of it. But it is expensive. And to be really effective, you also need a CT scanner which can be difficult to find. Meat and Livestock Australia is overseeing a trial that's taking place in several abattoirs across the country and is disappointed the industry has been slow to get on board with this. Lucas Forbes has the details. Right now, six Australian processors are testing how DEXA technology could make the industry more efficient. Meat and Livestock Australia General Manager of Research and Development Michael Crowley says the technology is now commercially ready but that not as many processors have taken it up as he would have liked. Oh, we certainly had hopes that there'd be a lot more uptake, but at the same time, you know, we need to make sure that it's working well, delivering what we expect, 
And I think we'll move from industry investment in terms of levies and, and using federal government dollars to private sector investment. So I think that's probably where we'll, we'll see its natural growth coming through the commercial drivers through through looking at those benefits. So rather than us having to push it, I think there'll be natural pull-through demand for this type of technology. What have been some of the issues or complications? It's expensive. And I think we've got to really nail the value proposition and I think that the technology is ready and it's just part of the evolution of industry being ready to adopt. So, so we'll look at how do we support that adoption, perhaps in a different way to what we had originally planned. But I'm really confident that, that a big proportion of our, of our industry will adopt, particularly when you think about how do we make high livestock prices really sustainable. If we can, anything we can do to reduce cost of production and cost of processing will go a long way to supporting the long-term sustainability of the industry. Mr Crotley says from what he's seen so far, the technology could be a big benefit for the industry. From a land processing point of view, we're looking at 6 to $7 per head in terms of reducing costs and picking up yield on those, on those animals. From a beef point of view, it is early days. We have um, one installation in a, in a beef processing works, but we are expecting and targeting around $30 a head improvement in reducing the costs in the beef industry that will be both reducing costs and, and, and yield improvements through automated processing. One of the processes that has been trialling DEXA technology has been Taze Australia in Queensland. Taze Australia's John Langridge says to get the most out of the DEXA system, they need a CT scanner to calibrate it. The complication has been getting the DEXA technology essentially calibrated properly. Um, so it's in fact is reading the right sort of thing. So the complications being that we've actually needed, well, not me, but the researchers have needed to get their hands on a medical grade CT scanner that can be um, installed into a lead line container and then held on site at the plant so we can do an image of, of an animal or a carcass in the DEXA um, and then we can run the, the same carcass through the medical grade CT scan and the medical grade CT scans with 100% accuracy tells us exactly what the composition of that carcass is in terms of meat, fat and bone and then the DEXA, it's, then we can use that information to then interpret the DEXA image. Mr Langridge says while a DEXA system is expensive up front, he thinks the system will be well worth it. Look, they, they are costly, but bear in mind we're actually, from our perspective, we're looking at two potential uses for a large DEXA unit. We're looking at one, predicting the yield of beef in that particular carcass before we actually bone it. The other thing that it could be useful in is driving robotics, like identifying where we would put the cuts in. So we've got two issues around that. That does come at a cost. There are other t scanning technologies that I know are being looked at to predict yield. They're probably not going to be as accurate as a DEXA, but they're also going to be a bit cheaper. These other technologies, though, also won't be that useful for draw, you know, basically identifying cutting lines for robotics, though. So, so the current DEXA in beef is, is, a, is an expensive unit, yes, but it does have other advantages that it will drive potential. It's got the potential to drive robotics. Meat and Livestock Australia's Michael Crowley says knowing more about the carcasses that are being processed isn't just good for processors, it could also mean higher prices for producers. 
When we give that feedback back to livestock producers, because the DEXA image allows us to give lean bone and fat to be able to give lean meat yield feedback to a producer, we're also implementing technologies that give eating quality information. And when we get that feedback back to the producer, they can optimise their production, become more efficient and deliver more animals that meet market specification. They get rewarded for that in terms of better prices. Meat and Livestock Australia's Michael Crowley, ending that story from Lucas Forbes. Three minutes to one. This text just through from the Cranbrook Shire. There is a fire on Graham Swiney's property on the Franklin Cogenup Road. It's east of the driveway, left at the top of the hill, and the request is for all available units within a 15-kilometre radius to please respond. The Shire is asked to please reply with your name if you are attending, you probably got that text through from the Shire if you are in that region. This is the Country Hour. Off to the markets now. And 11,782 sheep and lambs sold at Catanning this morning. So numbers up about 1,700 on last week. Tracy Kilner's at the Catanning sale yards. Can you go through the details, Tracy? Hi, Belinda. Um, it was a good sale. I'll just start with um, the summary. A mixed quality yarding was offered with all categories gaining again this week with processors keen to secure numbers. The lightweight lambs gained with restocker buyers hunting the lower priced pens. Heavy lambs sold to a top of $200, merino hoggets carrying a fleece topped at $200 as well. The heavy ewe mutton sold to a high of $210, while boners were the biggest movers gaining $12 to $19 a head. All processor buyers were operating but no export buying. A large gallery of feeder and background grazier buyers were back this week. Very lightweight lambs under 12 kilos carcass weight sold from $35 to $87, finishing up on last week. Air freight weights under 16 kilos carcass weight sold from $69 to $127, fluctuating on quality. The heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs gained, making from $119 to $159. The lighter trade weight lambs sold from $131 to $157, and the heavier end of the trade weights sold from $145 to $162 a head. Heavyweight lambs returned $170 to $189, and extra heavyweights made $200 a head. Young merino ewes sold from $90 to $200 to processors, depending on weights. Heavy ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight gained to return $186 to $210, while the lighter 24 to 30 kilo carcass weight gained with demand, finishing at $149 to $195 with a fleece. Medium weight and good boning ewes weighing under 24 kilos um, were high in demand, selling for $99 to $159 a head, while the lightweight ewes made from $66 to $110 to processors. Heavy mature weathers sold from 160 to 191. Lighter weights made from 70 to 159 dollars a head. Young hogget weathers returned 192 to 200 dollars for heavy weights, and the lighter weight categories sold from 100 to 160 dollars with increased demand. Young rams sold to processors for 70 to 146 dollars. Mature and store rams returned 20 to 60 dollars, and ram lambs made from 70 dollars for lightweights up to 146 dollars for the heavyweights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. Just repeating that request for firefighters in the Cranbrook Shire. The fire is on Graham Swaney's property on the Franklin Cogenup Road east of the driveway, left at the top of the hill, and the request is for all available units within a 15-kilometre radius to respond and respond with your name if attending. News time, one o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.